But you get me this morning. I'm sorry. Happy 2023. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. <coughs> Courtesy. Well, uh, guys, grab a, a Bible this morning if you have it or your app or whatever. Um, it's going to be really straightforward. We're not jumping around. It's going to be uh, Luke chapter 15 and the whole thing. Uh, Luke chapter 15, the whole thing. And so, um, oh, I'm sorry. So at the, uh, at the end of every year, and uh, whether you do it out loud or with other people or not, in the beginning of a new year, I think we're just sort of, it's inherent in us to sort of take a look back, right, at either what we've done this year or what, what we've accomplished or what we didn't accomplish, and we sort of take an assessment of, of what we've done, and then we look forward about what we'd like to do. And so if you're not feeling very joyful this morning or very hopeful, it might be because you've taken one such stock of your life. And so you might look in the mirror and you might decide, I need to lose some weight, right? Or you might look in your bank account and say, I need to save some money. Or you might have looked at your spiritual health even and decided, hey, I really need to start reading my Bible more or praying more. And those would all be good things. But why, why do we make that kind of assessment? Like, why does, why does that happen in our lives is an interesting question. And I think it's because we're dissatisfied in some way with the way that things have been. And so there's this sort of promise looking forward of some greater satisfaction that could be had in either some different condition or some different situation that we might be able to bring about. And so God, on the other hand, does not look in the mirror with any incontentment because he lacks nothing. There's no thing, there's no gadget, there's no item that he could acquire that would make him a little more satisfied or joyful. He has nothing that he hopes to do or any further contentment or satisfaction that he needs to uh, acquire or accomplish to make him more joyful. Um, there's no raise that he wants, no promotion that he needs, no title that he has not yet already acquired. So God does not look into the proverbial mirror and say, I need to make a change, right? I've really let my go, myself go over the last few thousand years. And so um, he's totally and utterly and perfectly sufficient. So why, why bother to, to point out that distinction between how we feel about things and how how God might feel about things. Well, if God is God and he's perfect and I'm me and I'm not so perfect, why, why is this distinction and contrast so important? Because it makes the point more profound for us that we have a God who's utterly sufficient, who desires, and lack, desires nothing more than who he is and lacks for nothing, that he would call us something to be desired, that he would put, place any value in us and that furthermore, he would take any kind of joy in the fact that uh, uh, redeeming a relationship with us uh, brings him some sort of condition other than what he's in right now. And so it's worth considering, and it makes it possible that this God could say that we bring him joy, that we bring God joy. And so that sort of turns things on our head, because when we think about joy, we think about what we must do to acquire to be happy. And God sees uh, joy a little bit differently. And so um, this morning I've done a little play on words. It's enjoying, enjoying. Okay. Because this is, this is what God wants for us and what we truly have when, um, when we have joy, it's because God has placed his joy in us. So I want to get to that idea this morning uh, in Luke chapter 15, which is a series of parables. And so uh, let me pray for our time in the word and, uh, that uh, God would use us to encourage us, because I think uh, if you've done any stock and, uh, you know, just even the last few days, there's just been so many things to find it out, and uh, uh, I'll just break the news. So Walter last night, or yesterday, texted, and he said, Chris, Chris broke her ankle, and she had to have surgery and stuff, 
And uh, I said, man, isn't that just like a fitting end to the year for... So I feel like that sometimes, you know, we, we, we have a lot of reasons. We look about and we see a lot of reasons for dissatisfaction and discouragement. And we're hoping for something that will make us joyful. And, and, and if you're placing your hope or your, your, your promise of joy in something that you might be able to do to bring it, bring it about, you're inevitably going to wind up at the end of 2023, looking into 2024, doing that same assessment and feeling like, well, isn't that par for the course? So I want to hopefully encourage you this morning and hand you a, a different um, foundation for, for hope and joy. So let's pray this morning, and uh, we'll get to it. Father God, you're good. I do thank you for those that have gathered and for your immense grace in our lives. It's your breath that we breathe this morning. And so we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love towards us. Father, I pray for those that are sick. I pray for those that could not gather this morning for any myriad of reasons that, God, you would use um, this time in your word to speak to them when they do hear it and that you would encourage our hearts towards you, that we would see what a good God you are and that you would help us to see um, the true source of joy and we might found um, our going forward in that instead of what other things might be distracting us right now. So God, ask that you would speak through me and uh, just that I would get out of the way and you would just use a willing vessel. Father, we ask that you would use your spirit for us to understand what would be spoken, that you would open our hearts to receive it. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Luke um, chapter 15 is uh, three famous parables, but it's actually only one parable. It's, it's one parable. You find that out in verse 3 because it says that Jesus tells a parable in response to the situation that's happening and sort of the challenge that he's presented with. And so really what it is, is it's one parable in three acts. And that it's, it's the third act that we're really familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. But before that, Jesus is talking about some other lost things, and he's doing all of this for the same crowd, for the same purpose, and uh, to teach a, a, a simple lesson. And so what happens is we tend to miss the fullness of what Jesus means by telling these all together. So Luke chapter 15 tells you all together for the purpose of um, highlighting uh, who God is, what he values, what he does in searching for us, and then the joy that comes about by um, these things. And so I I don't want to lose the context of why Jesus is telling us these stories this morning. So I'm going to make some simple observations, like very superficial, uh, surface level, like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I see that. And then I want like more more deeply seated, um, but is this really what Jesus means by the whole thing? And so stick with me. I'm not going to nitpick and, and break apart each of the parables in um, kind of minuscule uh, minutia. What I want to do is just take a, a, surf, a surface level look at it and then get to the point. So we're not going to analyze them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. So I'm, I'm going to rely a little bit on at least your familiarity with hopefully these parables. And so um, we have a God who seeks and a God who values and a God who loves. And these are all important. So in Luke chapter 15, act one, we see a story of a shepherd, a a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing, right? One of them is lost. And so Jesus is telling the story about shepherd. One is missing. He goes out and the shepherd looks for it until he finds the sheep. And when he finds it, he rejoices that he's found the sheep. He puts the sheep on his shoulders. He takes it back, returns it to the flock. But that's not the end of the story. If you look what happens in verse 6, it says, When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and they rejoice together. So the, the shepherd 
has brought the sheep back. There's joy in finding the sheep, but then he's also sharing that joy with the group of people that are around him. So in verse 7, he says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So the story tracks. Like, at the beginning, shepherd, sheep lost. Okay, he goes, he's happy. And then we, we get the story that he comes back, and he shares that happiness. And then Jesus says, and that's like what it's like when one sinner repents. And so maybe that connection is not quite as clear as we might hope it would be. But then he goes on to act two, which is not a, a new story, but the same story in a different nuance, okay? And so act two has a woman who has 10 coins. A woman who has 10 coins, and one now is missing, and she's determined to find it. So what she does is she lights a lamp, and she sweeps her house, and she finds it. We have a similar outcome, which is that she rejoices when she finds the coin. And then right after that, she calls all of her friends together, and they have a party, and they celebrate. That's in verse 9 of the, uh, chapter 15. It says, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay. So we have Act 1 and Act 2, and sort of similar stories. Same, same kind of conditions, same, same kind of process, if you will. So here's the simple observation that we should make about the story. Don't, don't try to dig any deeper than you need to sometimes. Just what is, what is Jesus trying to tell us, right? That finding lost things is something that occasionally requires some effort, right? It's something that occasionally requires some effort, but it also brings joy when that lost thing is returned or found or redeemed. And that joy then is shared. It's expressed with others, Okay. So Jesus wants to know that he is expending effort to find lost things and that he takes joy in finding and recovering and restoring and renewing things. And Jesus is emphasizing that joy is a shared joy, a shared joy. And for God, this means that joy comes from not just what he gets in getting things, but in the joy that he gives to others. So this is a, an interesting uh, turnaround in this whole thing. So let's talk for a second about um, why we might think that God has value in finding lost things because this is the way we look at finding, finding uh, joy in lost things. Did I say value? Because I meant joy. Why would, why would God find joy in, in, in redeeming lost things or recovering lost things? And we would, we would immediately want to attach that to the value of the thing recovered, right? It makes sense. Like if you lost a penny, you're not that worried about a penny because it's just, it's just a penny, right? But if you lose your whole wallet, right? That's, there's more value in the wallet, and you're going to be immensely more joyful over finding your wallet than you will over a penny, right? So do you see how we're going to attach joy to value? So here's where value needs to go in this discussion for us. Um, the, the value here is, uh, is recognizing why Jesus is telling the story. So if you rewind, before he starts telling the parables, in verse 1 and 2, it says this, this is the, the condition or the, 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 the things that brought about the occasion for him telling these stories. That in, it says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus. They wanted to hear him speak. They wanted to know who he was. And it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So it, when, that, uh, when, you, when you read that or when you hear that, hear He's making friends with the wrong kinds of people, right? He's, he's, he's cozying up to the wrong kinds of folks, the kinds of folks that we would say are pennies, not the whole wallet, right? These are the people that don't have very much value. They're, they're not bringing any righteousness to the table, and you have uh, a preacher, Jesus, who's cozying up to unholy people, and it's costing him something, right? There's ceremonial holiness that's at stake here and fellowshipping at a table, and so value here is at stake. 
So look at the first act, right? The sheep. The sheep are all just sheep. It's not that the one prized beloved sheep in the whole flock went missing. It's just one sheep. He didn't even name him, right? It's just, it's just gone, right? And so it's not that there's any inherent worth in this one sheep that outweighs the 99 other sheep that are there. It's the, what actually compels the search is the condition that the sheep is in. The sheep is lost. The sheep is lost, and it belongs to the shepherd, and it belongs with the flock. And so there's a purpose there, as I take, and that, that, that sheep now is in danger. So what if the picture here isn't so much about the fact that the lost sheep is inherently more valuable than the 99, and so the shepherd tries to leave, but the fact that there's a whole flock that belongs to the shepherd, and that the shepherd won't rest until the whole flock is back together. The picture here that we need to see is a shepherd who will not rest until the entire flock that belongs to him is restored to the fold. A sheep in the pen versus a sheep in the wilderness retain the same value. But it's the condition of being lost that causes the search. It's the same thing with the coins. The coins are all the same. We're told the same silver coins. It's not the one gold coin that got lost that makes the search so diligent. The search is not an effort to find something that has more worth compared with the rest of the things that are, that are had. It's uh, the fact that the woman already possessed the coins and she is, could even at one point be content with having more value in nine coins versus one lost silver coin. But the search is not motivated by the value of the thing being sought. The shepherd's joy and the woman's joy are in finding the thing, not simply because the value uh, of the possession, but it's the restoration of the lost value to the fullness. Okay? So here's what I'm trying to paint for you. Without the, the one in the ten coins, when the one coin's missing, the fullness of the totality is gone. The whole collection is missing, if you will. When the hundred sheep that all belong to the shepherd, when that, when that one sheep is missing, the value of the whole is detracted, not just the single thing, okay? And so we have a tendency to hyper-focus on the identity of the lost sheep and the identity of the individual 99s and the, you know, why is this one coin so important? And so we make a lot of inferences that I don't think are necessary in this case. It's not the increased value of the lost thing or the decreased value of already possessed items. It's the condition in which they're in and how they affect the whole, okay? So Jaden recently broke his leg, right? And I was primarily concerned in that moment with his health, not the health of my other two children, right? And it's not because the good health of my other two kids don't matter to me, but it's in that moment where his health was uh, at risk, right, or challenged that I became more concerned for that thing. And so you see that the condition that you find something in inherently increases your awareness of it, and it brings about different things. So it's at that moment that the pressing importance of the matter becomes my, my heightened awareness about it. And further, I will rejoice when and if the Lord willingly heals his body, right, and he gets the cast off, and he's restored to full health, not because I'm more happy, because he's more valuable, healthy to me, but because the, the fullness of what it is to just be a healthy family is important to me. And so it's, it's that the occasion and the opportunity for rejoicing is given because of what was lost. Does that make sense? Health lost. Now I have an occasion to hope for the restoration of that health. And that gives me the occasion also for rejoicing um, when he's healed. And so here's the problem with what we see in the Pharisees and the scribes in this moment, and even in our own lives, in our own hearts, when we look at this, is that what if my other kids thought that they were more valuable because they never cost me a doctor visit? 
right? They say, you know, that Jaden kid, he's so risky doing flips. <laughs> and uh, Father, I've never cost you, you know, a hospital visit, so I must be more valuable to you than, than Jaden, who costs you, then costs you more money. So, and this is the mentality that we see happening in the scribes and the Pharisees. They're looking at the, the risk that, that Jesus is taking and the effort that he's putting in and the rejoicing that he's having with these people, and they're making a, a valuation measurement about what's happening. So according to the measurement of the Pharisees, Jesus is receiving and enjoying and parting with, again, the wrong kinds of people for the wrong reasons. And often righteous people give little or no value to those whom they measure as less righteous, right? It's, it's the definition of holier than thou, right? You're less righteous than me. You're, you're costing something of God. You're costing something of God's righteousness in his name. And surely I'm more important, more valuable because I'm low cost, because I'm no cost, because God doesn't have to be aware of my surroundings so that he must come looking for me. I'm not lost. How could I be lost is the question here. And this is the problem. There's a, in their minds, there's a category of people who belong to God because they're good. There's a category of people that are already belonging to God because of their own inherent goodness and their own inherent value. And they're begrudging Jesus because he's receiving center, sinners. And I, 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 I um, impressed upon you last week the importance of that idea of just receiving something is not just hearing it. It's not just um, being aware of something, but receiving actually means to... to uh, to do, to do something with you and act on it. So eating is a celebration. It's a fellowshipping at the table, and there's a shared joy here that they're begrudging of Jesus. But it's not that Jesus is just celebrating sin, and that's the mistake they're making. They're thinking that Jesus is affirming them in their sin, and he's not affirming them by going and eating with those who they're calling um, fair, uh, tax collectors and sinners. It's that they think that they're also not in that category. Does it make sense? There's only one category. It's not the category for the good people and the bad people. It's that we're all bad people. And when you make that distinction, you've made the false distinction. And this is what they fail to see. Now, I want to make one more observation because what he says about the condition of these things being found is he says, this is like when a sinner repents, right? And so what you need to see here is that repentance is a gift of God. And it's a, as a result of God's effort and his searching and his, and his seeking you out. At what point did the sheep decide to get found? Right? He was out there lost doing his thing, caught a glimpse of the, uh, you know, the wolf prowling about in the bushes or something, and he decided then he would be found. Is that what happened? No, that, that, that's not what happened. Also, how about the coin? When the coin, whatever, it rolled under the bed or something, decide to be discovered? It didn't decide to be discovered. And so, have you ever considered that being carried back to the fold for, for safety or the shepherd, how could that be equated to repentance? Well, it's because it's the activity of the one doing the seeking, the one who's doing the searching that brings uh, repentance about. And that's why repentance is called a gift. It's something that you're granted. And so um, all of this is leading to the third act, okay? And so Jesus, is, is he not, he's not telling the same story three times for emphasis. He's telling... Uh, uh, who God is, what he's like, and then he's going to emphasize the reality of the situation and why we're missing it in the third story, the third act. It pulls into focus the first two pictures and the first two acts. So um, I'm going to test you here for just a second, your awareness of modern Christian pop music. 
Because there's a song that uh, came out, I think is a few years ago now, and it says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, what, the reckless love of God. And it's actually pulling on this picture of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep, and he goes and he seeks the one who's lost. And so um, there's a lot of words that you could use to describe God's love, but reckless isn't one of them. It's, it's never-ending. It's unmerited. It's unfathomable. It's marvelous. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of adjectives that you could use, but reckless is not one of the words that you could use to describe God's love. And why is that a problem for me? Am I just like nitpicky about doctrine? Yes. But um, there, there's a deeper thing here. Recklessness implies a wanton disregard for the value of something. It says, it says the exchange it doesn't matter to me. I'll, I'll go and I'll risk everything to um, potentially lose all of those things for the sake of the one thing. And what, uh, if, whether the artist meant to or not, what he's done is he said, it is the, it's the value of the lost sheep that, that so outweighs the 99 that are already there that causes the shepherd to move. And uh, I submit to you that that's not the picture that's being drawn here. Reckless love is not the, 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 the picture that, that Jesus wants to paint for us. It's, it's actually a very measured love. It's a, very, it's, it's a guaranteed love. It's, 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 it's the question of what is on the other side of the scale that could balance this, this risk, if you will, out for God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that we should look to Jesus, who's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, but then we're told why it is that he is uh, our, our sacrificial lamb and why he did what he did. He says, for the joy that was set before him, that's Jesus, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross. Jesus had joy already as a guarantee. So if you're, if you're trying to put the equation together, it's not risk of the 99 to pursue the one because the one is so important that that equation balances out. There's something else that makes it worth it on the other side. What is this joy? What goes on the other side of the balance, right? The scale balance that could possibly make Jesus' expense of his own life, of God himself coming. What can balance those out? What Jesus gives and what we get is himself. So the only thing that can, infinitely, uh, that can, that can balance out an infinitely worthy God is an infinitely worthy God. And so... Here is where I want the deeper observation to go. So the third act pulls into focus all the rest of what's happening here. So the prodigal son. And I said, I don't have time. There's lots of observations we can make about this story, but essentially it's this. There's a father who had two sons. And the younger son asked for his inheritance, and he goes and he spends it. And so there is reckless love here in this parable. But you know where you'll find the reckless love? It's that the younger son took the inheritance and he went and he said he spent it on reckless living. So what was at the, what was, what the pursuit of the, the younger son was, was in things that he thought would bring him joy and happiness, right? He's pursuing, uh, you know, food and, and prostitutes and all these things. It says in a foreign land. And finally, it says when he's in this foreign land, he's destitute, there's a famine. And it says he comes to his sentence, senses and he realizes he wants to go back and he wants to be made uh, a, a worker in the house of his father. 
Because even, even the servants had, had it better off than he had it at that moment. So he returns, and if you're familiar with the story, right, the father welcomes him back. He puts a robe around him. He gives him the ring, and uh, he gives him shoes, and he brings him in, and they, they, um, they throw a party. So we have, we have uh, the same thing now. Again, Jesus telling a story about something that was lost, being found. There's much joy, and then a celebration ensues. But that's not the end of this particular story. Um, if you look in verse 25, we have Jesus bringing this to a point. Because the older son, the one that had stayed home, he was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. So his father came out. And he entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you um, never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. So it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, and he is alive. Uh, and he is alive. And he was lost and is found. So here's, here's what I see in um, what Jesus is telling this story. And at this moment, when, when he brings in the, to, to, to view the older brother, suddenly I think the Pharisees and scribes see what Jesus is trying to tell them. That they're begrudging the celebration that's happening. And what they would have expected to happen at this moment is that the, this younger son who squandered all of the, the property and all of his inheritance... They would have thought, what he needs to do is he come back groveling, right? And that maybe he could work off his debt if the father was so kind as to let him do so. And so the fact that that's not what happened, they can identify then at this moment with the, the begrudging nature of the older son. But I think the, the truth of what the whole thing is, 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 is hidden in plain sight. And it's in this two lines, you were always with me. You were always with me. And then he says, all that I have, is yours. And we think to ourselves, what a shame, right? What a shame. The older brother was always there, and he always had this stuff. Because remember, he's, he's frustrated that the, the fattened calf's been killed to celebrate the, the younger brother returning home who didn't deserve anything anyway. But more to the point, I've always been here, and I've always said, you never gave me anything. And the response is, you were always with me, and all that I have is yours. And we say, oh, what a shame. He was always there, and he always could have had a party. He never took advantage of it but you're more right than you know. But the emphasis is not on all the stuff. It's, you were always with me. The, the point of the story is that, that the father is the, the thing to be desired. The father is um, the, 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 the main character who's in every scene. It's the father who the, the younger son wants to return to, to be a part of his house. It's the father who's even given any of the inheritance to have. And so we see that God is satisfied in relational unity in himself. But he enjoys when he can give that to other people. So if you can think of it this way, even though God is, doesn't need us, it's that when he can add uh, our joy by us enjoying him to himself, that brings him joy. So that sounded redundant, but I'll try to make this a little more clear. It bears our attention because a God who's fully content can say that he has joy 
in restoring us to himself. And so that's why when the father says, so that all I have is yours, he's not just saying his stuff. He's saying, all that I have is yours and you should enjoy the same things that I enjoy. And so you should share with my joy. Myself is what you can always have. And my joy should also be your joy. So you think, that's weird, man. I don't know if I can identify with that. So let me give you some, some examples that are less than, okay? Less than, it's not, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but you can at least um, understand. So have you ever, maybe you've been in an airport, or maybe at least watched a YouTube clip or something like that of when soldiers are returning from a deployment and the family is there and they're waiting and they've got a sign or something and maybe there's a, a small kid who's, who's not even seen their dad ever or um, they've just not seen him for a long time and the joy when that reunion happens, right? And we think, wow, that's amazing. But what else happens around that even if you don't belong to that family? There's like applause and everybody's just so happy for them that that relationship has been. So it's a shared in joy. Suddenly we can share in that joy. Why do people, um, when, if, if you think about uh, maybe a, a child that's been struggling uh, with a disease for a long time and uh, you, know, you watch uh, St. Jude's Marathon or something like that and you hear the story of the kid and then finally they're cured and their cancer's gone and like, it just brings tears of joy to you because that situation is restored. And you, 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 you get to share in the joy that's there. How is it that we can enjoy the benefit of someone else, right? It's that when someone else is benefited, we, somehow we take pleasure in that ourselves. And that's exactly what's happening here. God takes joy when we repent and when we find our joy in him. God sets his love and his affection and his attention on those who would otherwise not have it. And it's to their benefit. When, when you are restored to God. It's your benefit, not his. And yet he finds joy in that for you. I'm joyful when my children succeed. I'm happy and I'm especially joyful when they succeed at doing something that's beneficial even to them, like to their own soul and to their uh, flourishing. But when my kids do something they shouldn't do, right? And, um, they, they, uh, and there's consequences for it. I don't, I don't um, revel in the punishment. I don't, I don't like the consequences for them, but it doesn't make them um, any less um, important to me. And it's not because uh, they're, they're more valuable to me if they're doing something that brings me joy. Um, what, what actually primarily drives my investment in their happiness is my love for them, is, is my relationship to them. You, you probably don't care as much about how happy my kids are, right? Because they're not your kids, right? But think about it now from the perspective of God. That, that because he invests his love in you and he calls you his own, it's the basis of that relationship that it, he's able to take joy in our taking joy, in our flourishing, in our coming to fullness in our own benefit. This is uh, a total contradiction to the way that um, the Pharisees and the scribes measured things and how they looked at things. William Barclay, who's just a, a, a theologian and an a observer, or, <laughs> he observed, he's, he, was, he was a pastor, uh, he observed that um, the Pharisees were known to have a saying, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. And what Jesus is here saying is that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who's restored to God, who's found, who repents. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, 
God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. And uh, I would rather that he should turn from his way and that he should live. And so here's, here's the, the reason why Jesus tells this one parable in three acts and why he resolves it in a way that we should be invited into his own joy and why his joy is then instilled in us. Because all that I have is yours. When we're brought to fullness and restored to the flock, or we're found and discovered, and we become... So let me give you one more insight on the lost coin parable. So it's not just that there's probably just 10 silver coins laying around, but that this represents a, a dowry. And uh, it's a married woman. And so there's a picture here behind this, that the, that the value of the relationship is, is represented in having all 10 coins. And so I, I, I think it, it should be impressed upon us that um, it's, not, it's not so much that God is seeking the value of the single individual, not because he doesn't value you, but because he has a wholeness that he wants to restore all of his, all that belongs to him too. There's a, there's a, all, of, all of my sheep uh, know me and uh, they belong to me. They hear my voice and uh, I, I'll, I'll bring them into the fold and none of them will be lost. This, this is what Jesus says, that he's the good shepherd. That's what he does. And so Jesus is out here. He's expending effort for the joy that was set before him to seek and save that which is lost, to bring all of the totality of those who would belong to God in. And so what we do is we, we tend to measure about, well, well I, already, I already belong to God, right? Uh, he should be happy with me because I'm, I'm better. And so I want you to be encouraged this morning on a few different things. First, that we could be called at all a source of joy, right? A source of joy to a God who's, who, who doesn't need us but loves us anyway. And so maybe you, you just need to hear this morning that if you're trying to find joy or value in, in some other thing, in either acquiring or, or even your own satisfaction or your own measurement of yourself, know that the God of the universe can say that he finds joy in you being restored to him. And that's the second thing that you need to be encouraged in, that God has indeed set his love on you. That he's expending any kind of effort to come and seek and save that which is lost. He, he is the shepherd who goes and finds in the wilderness those who are not searching for him. He's, he lights the lamp so that things can be seen, and he cleans the house, if you will, so that what is lost can be found. And he's the good father, Right? He's, he's the one who receives and entreats. He doesn't just receive the, the wayward son who had squandered the inheritance. He also goes out to the older brother and he begs him to come in. It says that that word entreats is pleading. And he humbles himself twice. Once is when he ran out and he greeted the son that was even far off. He runs through town, right? And that's, that was a humiliating thing for a, a grown man to do in those days. And then he goes out and he goes out and he pleads with this other son to join in his joy. Why? Because, because you have always been with me. That means all that I am has is, is already been given to you. And you must only enjoy it because all that I have is yours. So that you can say, I might not have everything that I think I want, but you have everything that you need. And so um, I, I'm hoping that... Uh, this morning that you will be encouraged by Jesus' word to us and then maybe challenged. Because every parable only teaches a single truth, but it's when we sort of, um, when we take that truth in and it, it can be seen from a bunch of different perspectives. And so um, Jesus is, is 
brilliant for telling the stories this way. Because when we, when we take those in, we start to think about things and we go, maybe I'm like that. Or maybe I haven't seen that aspect of it. Or maybe I missed that. And so that's how those parables um, help us grow and learn and teach us. And so um, my hope this morning is that uh, you're encouraged, that you see that God rejoices over us, and that we can share in his joy because of 